0: Hey all, how are you? I hate starting late so bad I can't see straight. So I would rather start a couple of minutes early and see how everyone's week is going and has gone. And hopefully it's been as good a week as I have had. I am excited for tonight, man. I've got some great information for you all. How are we all? Hopefully you've all had a good week. I am really happy to be here. It's good to see all of you. Vincent, Doug Vincent, Tim Rathbone, welcome. Splunky Doink, you're here. Ryan Larson, all of you guys, you're awesome. Radio Free Mormon, man, I've got the whole great crowd here. Even if there's only two of you. Or wait, now you know why they don't call me Einstein. (laughs) I love math, but it doesn't love me. (laughs) I actually uh, restudied a whole bunch of my algebra a few years back and got ah, halfway decent. I studied geometry and sacred geometry more than algebra, however. I must admit, hey, El Simon Bond, how you doing? So, yeah, I got to get on just a couple of minutes early just to let folks come in and to say hello And uh, let you know, hey, I've got a new shirt on. Yeah, I was able to go get a new shirt. I don't look too bad in red, do I? Kind of, it's kind of reddish pinky, sort of, you know, matches my flushed cheeks. Yeah, whatever. We're not interested in how you look. Shut up and talk, right? (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's gonna be a great night tonight. I have some excellent evidence from the papyri to show you my contention that I'm going to talk about tonight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is for real where I am excited. Yeah, salmon. I guess that is more of a salmon color, isn't it? Kind of a cool-looking red color. Makes me look suave and debonair. Yes. Too bad I don't act that way, huh? <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'm I'm who I am. That's how it works, Right i am too ryan i am i am really truly genuinely excited to be here tonight uh i had one of those weeks i i just i had a week where the information just came tumbling down upon me by bookshelves low. just look at all these bookshelves behind me no i mean the more i read the more i found this week it it was one of the I mean, man, it was a fabulous research week. truly was. Hey, it's 6 o'clock. I'm going to get started, and the rest of those who show up, great. And uh, if they don't, they miss out. They can watch the uh, video recording. Looks like we've got him. Oh, you couldn't see me? Oh, well, lucky you. (laughs) Boy, that's fortunate. Just listen to you. You don't want to look at me, do you? All right. All right. It's time to get serious. Actually, it's time to get organized. Hey, uh, Barry Richens, I know you're out there, my friend. If you're not, you'll see this when you watch the video. Thank you so much. Uh, I've, I've gained another friend, another, uh, fellow researcher along with all of you who are already here. And uh, he probably lurks behind the scenes, but I told him I was going to call him out and say thank you to him for all the, uh, ideas. Uh, I mean, all of you, I talked to Doug Vincent, I've talked to you this week. Uh, he can tell you that what I'm about to say tonight is actually really right. So I've got some great stuff and, uh, radio free Mormon. I, I, uh, I've got a lot of stuff going on. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Splunky Doink. That's so kind of you. Okay. The Scott Experience O'Brien. The Scotty Experience. Good to meet you. Good to see you. Okay. We've got enough folks here. Let's get going. Okay. Yeah, we did. We did have a good chat, Doug. Okay. So, what I'm going to show tonight is... I want to begin to focus on the individual LDS apologists and many of their arguments, right? And, and I w- this will interlace. I mean, you know, tonight I wanna to focus on uh, John Gee, and yet I'm gonna be talking about uh, Stephen Smoot, and I'll bring in Kerry Moostein a little bit, and uh, some of the others. With the idea, well, in Wade England, uh, but he was, he was back in 2011-2012. Uh, I'm going to share a conversation that Kevin Graham and Wade England had where they discussed the papyri. And I want to share some of that information as well with the evidence. So, Heidi, welcome. How are you? Good to see you here. What uh, what happened this week? Now, here is an irony, and and I mean I, I know I'm I'm using that word a lot because once you come from the inside, right, and you kind of get a like uh, Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon have shown, once you get the thirty thousand foot view, uh, ironies begin tumbling out. And so I will try hard not to overuse that word, irony. I would rather use uh, myopic lazy learner like we've been accused of being from the church leadership, which is pure bogus. We all know that. So this week, I actually have a revelation, the kind of which... Joseph Smith said, "Scout's honor, Matt. Whoop! That's the left hand. That doesn't work. It's got to be the right hand. Scout's honor. Let's see. Three fingers and one down. Yeah. Scout's honor. Peace out, and yo, mama. Hang loose. Uh, you know, hand signals. Oh, oh. Okay. It's time to get serious. As I was studying this subject." Um, oh, and I forgot his book. That's all right. I don't need it. As I was studying this subject, an idea dawned on me. And we've all read this idea. We are all aware of this idea, very interestingly. and uh, But we don't pay attention to it to the point to where it sinks in. And that's what happened to me. And it dawned on me, this is a very clarifying point. Now, the reason I started this series is, one, uh, it is exciting to begin to get clarity on such a, an involved scholarly topic like the papyri and the book of Abraham and Mormon apologetics, and history, and philosophy, and all that. But to get clarity can really empower you to help us make better decisions. And that's why I get so excited. Well, I had a point this week come up, and for whatever reason, it stuck. And I'm going to share that point with you. And then I'm going to discuss how the apologists won't touch this with a 10-foot pole to, quote, Hugh Nebley! Yes, go, Hugh! The apologists won't touch this with a 20-foot pole. Let me explain. I read John Gee's article in the uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson Feshrift this week on his eyewitnesses, hearsay, and the book of Abraham papyri. And, uh, you know, when I got done, I had to sit back and I said, well, what on earth? I mean, come on, this is too complicated. Seriously. Uh And of course, of course, I'm telling on myself here because I'm just not intelligent enough uh, to keep up with the scholarship of John Gee. I'm sure that's going to be one of the responses. Yeah, no, duh, doo-wah, you backyard professor. You have to turn your brain on when you read the scholars. This is true, but I still didn't get it very much. Now, it's interesting because as an apologist, right? John Gee's information when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another scholar. Here's another article from another scholar I can use to destroy and defeat the critics, right? To confirm the authenticity of the book of Abraham, to demonstrate that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. And so I basically repeated some of the information in Guy's article without really grasping it. And I know that's a horrible confession to make. Are any of you bishops? I'm repenting of my sins tonight. <laughs> I am confessing. I uh I was just really astounded. Hey, Mark Crispin, good to see you. Uh Harriet Ander Atkinson, I mean, sorry, I meant, yeah, anyway, you guys are having a good time and that's good. I need to keep talking. I have a boatload of information. So I sat there after reading John Gee and I said, uh, yeah, now what? And I thought, okay, uh, go back to the collection of witnesses that I have, the contemporary eyewitnesses to the papyri and the mummies in Joseph Smith's day, and just reread them, you know, because Guy does deal with uh, a few of the witnesses in his article. And I do want to begin to focus on several of the of the strategies, the skills, the scholarship, the and it's so unfortunate that I have to say this, but I have yet found further evidence of this. I, I you know, I'm just going to be, for the interest of clarity and straightness, the misrepresentation, the manipulation, I'll put it that way, that's charitable, um, cheating <coughs> of, the, of the use of the evidence. So I'm, I'm rereading the witnesses. And this idea shows up, and it expands in my mind. And I go, no way. (laughs) Uh -uh. This cannot be this simple. It cannot be this simple to understand this subject. I mean, I wrestled with this thing for decades as an apologist, you know, and it's been a little while since I've been an apologist, you know. It can't be this easy. It's this easy. And I'll tell you in under a minute how easy it is in just a few minutes once I lay the groundwork, but I'm not dawdling, I promise. So, with this idea that Firmly came to me, I said, okay. I looked at Stephen Smoot's book review of Dan Vogel's book, Book of Abraham Apologetics. And this is in Interpreter, I believe March. It's been one year. It's been about March, March 2021, one year. Stephen Smoot. Now, Look, let's give credit where credit's due for real. Uh, Steven Smooth is a young kid. He, I call him kid. He's a young man. Uh, he's He's got to be approaching 30 now, 20. He's in his, uh, well, mid-20s. I don't want to age him too fast. He's got a lot of good research and writing to do for sure. Look, uh, this kid is, is, working on his Ph.D. on Egyptology, I believe somewhere up in Canada, and this this book review, now had I been an apologist still, I would have been green with envy over this book review. I mean, man, this was the book review I would have wanted to write. This guy Stephen Smoot does a sensational scholarly job. I believe in giving credit where credit's due. And I give him full cre- I mean, I'm serious, man. A hundred and eighty plus footnotes, for instance. A long review. It wasn't just a tic-tac-toe Mickey Mouse. Oh, here, let's slip it out out of seven pages and be done with it. No, he really did do a deep dive and delved into a bunch of materials uh, and I will be discussing it in more detail because I fundamentally disagree with his overall conclusion concerning Dan Bogle's approach, but Smoot actually gave Bogle credit where credit was due also. I don't think Smoot is our typical Mormon apologist. I think he's got, I mean, yeah, he tries to throw out sarcastic, dry wit sometimes, and sometimes it backfires. I mean, doesn't it do that to all of us? Overall, I'm telling you, in his footnotes, he is translating out the Hebrew. He is translating out Egyptian out of the the coffin text in the Book of the Dead. What Smoot does in the first of this article is he uses Hugh Nibley's approach, right? Right. With the book of Abraham, look, you guys, if we want to discuss, if we want to truly come to a grasp of the book of Abraham, we have to recognize the vast complexity. And he's got this right. I'm not kidding. The ancient history alone is intimidating. When you get to the archaeology, the discussions of where was Ur of the Chaldees, the various messages. Mesopotamian, the Assyrian, the ancient Babylonian, the ancient Jewish materials, the histories of, then you get into the biblical view, the Old Testament interpretation and view, and you have the languages, you have the Aramaic, you have the Hebrew, you have the Greek. You really truly might have to work with the cuneiform. Of course, you've got the Egyptian hieroglyphics. You've got the... uh, the linguistic aspect of this alone, and then you have all of these pseudographs, and you have all of the legends and the stories of Abraham, and all of the parallel connections with all of those, and then you have the incredible, overwhelming modern total scholarship of all of this, as well as on the book of Abraham that you have to come to grips with and get a context for with both the Mormon and the non-Mormon like. And that's just in order to enter the arena of maybe finding out the authenticity of the book of Abraham we really do have to have a a college education, a PhD. Smoot is really pushing this view and the entire overall historical context is just stunning how much there is to this vast realm of ancient history, knowledge, philosophy, linguistics that we must attempt to have a scholarly understanding and we're talking decades of our lives. And my response is very simple. No, we don't. I don't give a flying flip About the book of Abraham, because I'm testing Joseph Smith. I'm not testing the book of Abraham. That doesn't even enter the picture. You don't even need a high school education to test Joseph Smith as a prophet, seer, revelator, and translator. This was the idea that hit me right between the eyes this week. Stephen Smoot's article, I would put as the very finest example of Mormon apologetic deflection off of the only subject we give a fly and flip about, Joseph Smith. So that is my way of saying congratulations, Stephen Smoot, for truly, I I am not kidding, I, I, I think this kid has surpassed me in putting together such a wonderful scholarly paper on the book of Abraham, but I don't need all that knowledge at all to go with the only objective and the only subject that really matters, because we're testing Joseph Smith. So that's that's Stephen Smoot. Now, in the process of coming to this idea, and I I double-checked and triple-checked with the witnesses and the papyri, which I will show you tonight, that really, truly, just basically squash John Gee's missing scroll theory in a very interesting, unique way. Yes, we're familiar with Cook and uh, Smith's paper in dialogue 2010 and then the second follow up to John Gee's lame response in 2011 their 2012 dialogue article just crucified John Gee yes I'm not going to go into that I've got another angle again another angle (laughs) this is so fabulous before I get to anything further I want to say this book right here approaching antiquity 2015 it's a deseret book and yes it's 39 dollars. don't be skeptical just yet i will say as a brief overview of this book now i read the book and i discovered something that just absolutely blew me away But overall, there is, what, 18, 19 LDS scholars in this book, and they are analyzing Joseph Smith's discussion of the ancient texts, his understanding and interpretation of antiquity, and it didn't matter what, I mean, he did have a huge interest, let's just agree to that, because he tried to get into the Hebrew, he tried to get into the Egyptian hieroglyphics, he wasn't as proficient with the Greek or the Latin or any of that, but... Joseph Smith was constantly trying to bring in the ancients into a connection with his restoration, right? Well, a lot of these guys talk about that. Carrie Mulstein's article astonished me. Carrie Mulstein blew my mind in this book because it is the best thing that man has ever written. And again, I mean, truly, come on, you got to give credit where credit's due when it's due. John Gee's article in front of it is just pure... You know, I don't know why he, I do too, but I mean, it's too bad. Gee, just makes it so flipping hard. It just does not have to be that way. It's unfortunate I have to say that about his research. But Kerry Molstein, oh my gosh, Kerry Molstein. Joseph Smith's biblical view of Egypt, this guy scooped me (laughs) seven years ago. He already described the entire subject of what I want to talk about tonight. And he did it credibly. Blows my mind. I'm serious. It's the best thing Molstein's ever written. I am not kidding. I cannot give him too much credit here because none of his other junk or uh, stuff, material scholarship, has ever been so honest and forthright and careful in the analysis as this one. And what he did is he explored all of the various witnesses in Joseph Smith's day on the biblical aspect of Joseph Smith's understanding and how all the witnesses cross check, support, Come together. Yeah, there's a lot of second and third hand witnesses to this whole subject. That is true. But Molstein, by gosh, that son of a gun handled the evidence beautifully. I mean, it's about flipping time, right? Would that he would do that with the papyri and the Egyptian? (laughs) So again. Seriously, I give full credit where credit's due. On this article, I am not kidding. That article, that one, and Brian Hauglid has a really good article in this on the uh, the uh, Egyptian alphabet and grammar uh, and its relationship to the to the uh, Book of Abraham translation folio in the papyri. Uh, Just Molstein and Hauglid's articles alone are worth the price of this book. I, if you think I'm bluffing, go. I'm not kidding. Check it out of your library if you can't afford it. But really, Smoot's article's worth reading, too. You can see fabulous scholarship of the finest Mormon deflection you'll ever see anywhere. It's probably a dubious distinction for Smoot, but that's the only option I have to give him. Kerry Molstein. I loved his article. But... Yeah, there's always a but to Mormon apologetics. (laughs) Look, it's not my fault. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot me, however. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. Molstein is a BYU professor. Now, he took... What he did, I don't I don't even know if he's aware of this, but what Molstein did is he did a Bayesian theorem inference approach to the witnesses in Joseph's mistake. day. I don't I don't know if he deliberately tried to do that, but I mean it. He deals with the probabilities. And he does very well. I blow me away. I am deeply impressed. But (laughs) being a Mormon, being a Mormon scholar, paid from BYU, and we know that at least five of the Quorum of the 12 are on the board. Uh, BYU, Mulstein comes to the proper conclusion up to as far as he can take it and then stops. Tonight, I'm going to show you the total conclusion. Tonight, You get the Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. But I very heartily congratulate both Smoot for excellent scholarship and Molstein for amazingly well-done methodology to put together the best damn thing you've ever written, Dr. Molstein do more like this sincerely but I understand you can't take it all the way out but the rest of us can okay now that's enough introduction I needed to do those two gentlemen now this is what is so astonishing that came to me in the next one minute I've been ranting and raving for 30, but I had to get that out of me because that's really important. I mean, on it. This whole book, this whole book, I'm serious, is a very hopeful sign that we are past the myopic, lazy-learning, whitewashed bullshit of history of Boyd K. Packer. This book gives me hope that now that Packer's out of the picture, let's just drop his stupidity and let's get rid of the McConkie There We know it all and we are the only truth. Let's analyze history more realistically. Sincerely, man, this book is a very, very good start. Now, will it continue? I don't know, but I am deeply impressed. Even Robert Millett did a really good chapter i mean i never for the life of me i never imagined i'd say that in my lifetime but so so you know we're moving we're moving forward now in under one minute i'm going to show you why we don't have to know any egyptology we don't have to have a phd we don't ever ha- we don't even have to have a high school ged we don't have to study the hieroglyphics it doesn't matter about how many scrolls or rolls there are it's irrelevant how joseph smith translated hieroglyphics none of that matters. It does not matter how many footnotes have been used. It's irrelevant whether we even look at the book of Abraham, the papyri, or the facsimiles. We can test Joseph Smith on the very simplest first level, and I'll tell it to you right now. He consistently, nonstop for, time me, time me. I'll do this in under one minute. We can test Joseph Smith fundamentally. Someone start the clock right now. Joseph Smith consistently, steadily, nonstop. He never corrected anyone else who also did this. He never published anything other than the only provenance he ever gave to the papyri. And it was a purely biblical provenance. And you say, dude, we already know that. Wait. Abraham and Joseph... There are also witnesses as Mulstein noted. Astoundingly, he noted. There are also witnesses who described King Abimelech, Adam and Eve, the creation, the book of Jacob, the lines of Aaron, the signature of Abraham and Moses, and the ten tribes, and the temple work, etc. Joseph Smith put it in the wrong culture and the wrong millennium. There are no scholars today, whether Egyptologists or biblical scholars, whether they're Mormon or not, none of them, including Molstein, who does not show us the full ramifications none of them show that the provenance of the papyri have anything to do with anyone in the bible therefore we see the fraud and Many of his followers, I'm almost done, and it's almost one minute. Many of Joseph Smith's followers proclaimed in stentorian voice testifying that Joseph Smith received his knowledge of the papyri and their contents by Jesus Christ. Heavenly inspiration, the seer stone and the Urim and Thummim. And therefore, we can see the fraud without looking at anything else. That alone shows us Joseph Smith is a fraud. Okay, hit the stop button. How long did that take me? Now, let me ask you a question in all seriousness. I'm, I'm kind of hamming it up in a way, uh, but not really. This is quite serious. How many of us did not understand what I just said within the last minute? Anyone at all? Was there anything confusing about that at all? Of course not. It is straightforward. It is crisp. It is clear. It is as clear as the golden day without a cloud in the sky. There aren't any scholars who would agree with that providence, you guys. And yet, Joseph Smith steadfastly consistently from 1835 to 1944, nine non-stop years, kept teaching the same thing. Oh, well, this is Abraham's signature. This has to do with Christianity. Well, this has to do with... Adam and Eve and the gospel plan of salvation, etc. He always discussed it with biblical people in mind. So did everyone else that Joseph Smith taught, and those he even allowed to show off the mummies and the papyri when he couldn't be there, namely his mom, Lucy Mack Smith, and there was a storekeeper, someone else who showed it, but Oliver Cowdery, Orson Pratt, Parley P. Pratt, Wilford Woodruff, all of the followers of Joseph Smith, the future apostles and prophets of Mormonism after Joseph Smith died, Every one of them described, discussed, understood this revealed intelligence and knowledge as being biblical. It pertains to ancient Israel over there in the Palestinian Sinai wilderness. And there's absolutely nothing in the papyri that has that provenance. Joseph Smith never corrected anyone about their teaching the biblical provenance and the significance of linking the ancient biblical peoples with the Mormons. Many, many of the scholars in this book, and I'm not going to take the time to maybe I'll do another video on it to show you, but I I mean, at least a dozen of them say that is the core. Now, I'm not just taking an idle, lesser, important, sort of of out-of-the-way context and centralizing it and magnifying it all out of proportion in order to not get to the core reality of what Joseph Smith thought and early Mormons thought. This is the core. This is the reason why Joseph Smith was seen as one of the biblical prophets because all of his materials that he translated tied them back to the patriarchs, the king's, Tied them back to Adam and Eve. Hell, man, Adam and Eve were so far away in the real Garden of Eden that Joseph Smith brought the Garden of Eden to the Mormons and stuck it in Jackson County, Missouri. I'm serious. The core, and it is acknowledged by current Mormon scholarship, by several leading Mormon Apologists, scholars, biblical scholars, Greek scholars, Hebrew scholars, Egyptological scholars. I am so sincere. The whole theme is biblical Israel. Revealed to Joseph Smith. And none of it's real. There's nothing in the papyri about it, and that sucks if you're a Mormon. Now, the apologists, the leaders, no prophets, apostles, 70s, nobody's ever going to use that as their basis of teaching the truth of the ancient Bible, you know, the papyri, the papyri. No one does that. No Mormon apologist emphasizes this except Kerry Mulsteen, but he stopped short. We have proof of fraud that Joseph Smith nor Jesus Christ knew what that papyri was all about. Now, if you're a Mormon... And you want to exonerate Jesus. Okay, hold on, professor. You're pushing this issue a little bit hard. Uh, You can't implicate Jesus. You know, Jesus does know all things. So he knew what was on the papyri. Okay, let's save Jesus's hide and take him out of the picture. What option does that leave us for Joseph Smith? Fraud with a capital F. Even if he sincerely believed it himself, it's bunk. He only taught the one context, and it's not even valid. That was my insight. Now I want to get to Kevin Graham. I'm repeating myself a little bit for emphasis. I apologize in advance. But I promise you'll love what I'm about to show you now. 2011, Kevin Graham had a fan. And now he was a former apologist. He was actually in fair with me at the same time on the private fair email list, putting together the responses to the anti-Mormons out there on Alt Religion Mormon and the new websites. And he helped uh, put together the fair message boards when it was in existence, et cetera. We were buddies working side by side, and he ended up seeing the light first and said, I, actually, what made Kevin so upset is how John Gee was constantly lying to us at fair. It was Kevin Graham who first, called Robert Rittner's attention to the misuse of Egyptology by Rittner's student, John Gee, and that woke Rittner up. That got him looking over toward Utah. And he said, what the? Wait, I didn't teach him to be that shoddy with his scholarship. No, that doesn't lay at my feet. That kid is on his own. He knows better. He knows better. And that's when Rittner, unfortunately, had to say, you know what? Yes, I taught him, but not that stupid bullshit. He knows better. He is misusing the methodologies. He is mistranslating stuff. Thanks to Kevin Graham, he woke up Robert Rittner to what was really going on. I want to read Kevin Graham's argument with Wade England that is electrifying because I'm going to show you the paprological evidence of the issue. First, I have to read this part. This setup never dawned on me as an apologist. It came after I decided... <laughs> This part of it, but the clarification, the clarity of the real problem of John Gee really popped out when I saw this. And I didn't see this at the time. Um, I was still an apologist for a little while, and then I jumped ship. Now I found this, and it's too good not to share. If the book of Abraham was taken from some material serious papyrus that no one can seem to identify, this is John Gee's statement now, I mean, this is his approach, if it's taken from some mysterious source, then why is it that virtually all historical and textual evidences alluding to or pointing to the Joseph Smith papyri always refer to the papyri that we have right now today. He develops this. The Kirtland Egyptian papers contain transcribed characters from extant papyri that we have today and even copied images from those irrelevant scraps. Now, the apologists have gone to calling the remains of the papyri that we have scraps in their efforts to minimize the importance of this incredible book of breathings and this book of Joseph that we possess that I've shown you over and over and over again in my videos. And I'll show them to you again tonight with another different purpose that adds more clarity. Thank you, Kevin Graham. I give full credit to you, my protege. The now canonized book of Abraham, Abraham 1, 12 through 16, referred to the book of breathing's text quite explicitly, as I have also shown in my previous videos. But why are there no testimonies describing images or animals or colors that are missing from the papyri that we have today. Interesting question. Where is he taking this? Here is where he's taking this. The point here is very simple. <laughs> it is, wow. Wade England couldn't get it. but I... Anyway, let me keep going. The more missing papyri that John Gee proposes to have existed, the more significant the surviving portions become because logic dictates that if these missing portions were of significance, in other words, if they contained the record of Abraham, then we would have at least one testimony describing the missing scrolls contents. Contents that cannot be attributed to the papyri that we have now, to these portions. But we don't have any of that. Instead, we have numerous detailed descriptions of the papyri portions, which apologists insist are just fragments of the entire collection. Fragments that are irrelevant to the book of Abraham. This is the apologetic argument on the papyri so from Cowdrey's detailed descriptions to the casual descriptions by passing tourists everything seems to point to the materials that have survived since 1835 now that's remarkable that's really a critical point here <laughs> this will amaze you when i show you this is what makes this so much fun. Okay, let's go ahead and give Guy credit. Let's grant him his claim even. the Joseph Smith had dozens of feet of papyri that are now lost. Then why is it that all of our eyewitness testimony that exists today right now is only describing the Book of Breathings, which we have, and the Book of Joseph, which we also have. Were you aware that all of the contemporary descriptions of the papyri are only about the Book of Breathings and Book of Joseph? I wasn't. So this was a hell of a revelation for me. And then I looked into the papyri, and that's what I'm going to show you tonight as it's described, by non-Mormons and Mormons alike. This is so fascinating. So here's the deal, to quote a very dear friend of mine. It isn't enough to prove there was missing material. One has to show why the book of Abraham would have had anything to do with that missing material at all. Even if we go ahead and we grant Nibley his premise that the book of Abraham manuscripts were a product of creative scribes, of course, there's no evidence for that and had nothing whatsoever to do with Joseph Smith's input or knowledge, then how does this argument from imaginative plausibility really help out the apologists? What are the chances that so many of Joseph Smith's contemporaries, his closest friends, and his hired scribes had no idea which Papyrus referred to the book of Abraham given the fact that Joseph frequently showed the papyri collection as a community exhibit to everyone that wanted to see it that is a fantastic powerful point point. and Wade England true to form Stands up there, and all he can say to that is, seriously? <laughs> yeah, that's the Mormon apologetic defense, man. I feel so sorry for Wade. Kevin Graham just destroys him, man. Oh, my gosh. Here's Graham's response. <laughs> oh, my. Yes, seriously. Seriously. Apologists have been dodging this issue since forever, it seems, and they still are. Uh, Kevin wrote this 11 years ago, and they haven't touched this with the 10-foot pole yet. The fact is there is overwhelming evidence to support the view that the papyri we have right now in the church's possession that was given back in 1967, that papyri, the papyri that the church has completely published in this book. Yes, that papyri. The point is entirely that... This is the papyri that Joseph Smith used to produce the book of Abraham. And I mean, that's what all my videos have been doing since forever when I started this series, right? There is no evidence to support the claim that the source is missing. Sucks to be John Gee, man. Yeah. Proving something isn't missing, isn't enough. You have to give us good reason to dismiss the ton of evidence that strongly suggests the source for the book of Abraham is among the papyri we have today. Double-edged sword for the apologist, and they failed both of them. And yes, the evidence is overwhelming. Boy, is it! It's incredible, so much so that LDS scholars, this is an interesting take, immediately agreed with the critics as soon as the papyri were rediscovered in the 1960s. Did you know that? uh, Nibley, Crapo, Clark, and even the Improvement Era referred to these documents as those used by Joseph Smith in his translation of the book of Abraham. It was only after they found out that the translation didn't vindicate Joseph Smith that they suddenly began to shift their ground and seek out other hypothetical explanations that could somehow serve to save Joseph Smith's credibility. The critics have the advantageous position of being able to accept the evidence as is. What does it tell us? We can accept that. It is the apologists who are hard-stressed to find reasons for why the translation doesn't work. Remember, we actually don't need any of this. None of his translations can possibly work given the biblical provenance Joseph Smith claimed for the papyri. On the simplest level, we can test Joseph Smith and say, we don't need to worry about any of that other stuff at all. That's wonderful. I mean, it's unfortunate for the Mormons, but it's awesome how powerful the evidence is, as I will show you just shortly. So, yeah, and he goes through the evidence uh, where they even said, well, the Improvement Era said these parts by the prophet in preparing the text of the book of Abraham and the facsimiles of the papyri that we have now are back in our possession, so on and so forth. Stan Larson in his book, The Quest for the Gold Plates, showed Thomas Stuart Ferguson also held that position. He said, oh, yes, we've got the papyri. So Ferguson went and grabbed photographs of the papyri, and he went, I believe, down to California and contacted the Egyptologist Lesko and asked. Now, Ferguson didn't put any preceding context to it. He didn't mention Mormonism. He didn't mention the book Abraham, none of that. He told Lesko, he said, here, Here's some Egyptian papyri. What is this? And every time he went to a different Egyptologist, they said the same thing. "Ah, this is a Book of the Dead, um, some of its book of breathings, it's Egyptian funerary material. And so Ferguson said, oh, my gosh, the gig is up. And he also predicted correctly. He said, you know what the apologists are going to say? They're going to stupidly say we don't have the actual source. (laughs) And sure enough, the sugar sweet. Along comes Hugh Nibley and then follows after him with Guy and Mulstein, And they're still saying that. And they just they've lost the war. They're not right. So anyway. From the Mormons themselves. And, of course, Wade England doesn't quite get it, so Kevin Graham says this, too. He says, I'm not sure why you're having trouble when I say extant material. I mean, they didn't even know what he was talking about when he used the word extant. And we're talking serious depth here, right? So much of the evidence points directly to that tiny portion of scraps that we have today. The ones the apologists are minimizing, the Book of Breathings and the Book of Joseph, the Book of the Dead of Taught Sherat Men, actually. They keep saying, well, no, those are insignificant. The real good stuff is the missing stuff. It's a guesswork, right? We always seem to get descriptions that can easily be found on the tiny collection that we have in the contemporary eyewitnesses in Joseph Smith's day. Wade England was so skeptical that he went and (laughs) Wade England went and grabbed the witnesses comments and descriptions of the papyri, right? And he put them down and he said, he said, well, according to the Cleveland Whig, and this is in 1835, March 25th, in an article regarding Chandler's exhibit. He describes that there was found in the deposits under the arms of the old man in the bark or in the coffin, a book of ancient form of construction that looks like bark. It's 10 to 12 inches long, 3 to 4 inches wide. The ends are somewhat decayed, but the center of the leaves are in a state of perfect preservation. There is also another book more decayed and much less neatly written. It's Characters and import involve a like mystery. Wade England asks Kevin Graham after reading that description, are you supposing these descriptions easily fit the papyri that we have today? So see, Wade is getting one up on Kevin, right? And then he goes later, he said, but I'm not done yet. In the Painesville Telegraph, We have more witness description of the papyri that Joseph Smith was showing, like you claim. And they say about the female who had a little bit of a resemblance. Her book had a resemblance of birch bark. The language is unknown. Uh, It's filled with hieroglyphics, etc. The other role has a role of writings. Uh, As Numbers 1 and 2 and Wade England asks Kevin, can all three of these roles be easily accounted for with the extant papyrus? Do the extant papyrus contain both red and black ink like the witnesses described? Do the extant papyri fragments contain many female figures? And then he goes on and reads in the autobiography of Sarah Studevant, Levitt, where she says, we went into the upper rooms, we saw the Egyptian mummies, the writings that was said to be written in Abraham's day, Jacob's ladder being pictured upon the papyri. And Wade thinks he's got Kevin in a real bad corner here, he asks sarcastically, Could you point me to where in the extant papyri I might find Jacob's ladder pictured? And then he says, The history of the Wade is quoting the history of the church, volume two, chapter 25, pages 348 to 351, dated December 31st, 1835. And he says, Oliver Cowdery's description which is probably really the the best, the most complete description of the papyri that we have from anyone in Joseph Smith's day came from one of Joseph Smith's own followers, Oliver Cowdery. And he talks about the connection with the two bodies of the books, Uh, something rolled up in a kind of a linen saturated with some bitumen. And when they examined, they proved to be two rolls of papyrus, uh, two or three small scraps of papyrus with astronomical calculations, epithets. And these were found with the other mummies. Here we have indication of two rolls and two or three small fragments of papyrus Can all of these things be easily accounted for in the papyrus that we have today? England asks Kevin Graham. What about the astronomical calculations and the epithets? And in a more complete rendering, Oliver Cowdery again in The Messenger and Advocate, he says that Chandler certified that the papyrus covered with red or black ink or paint in excellent preservation, these are very interesting. Uh, Cowdery goes on to explain that the language in which the record is written is very comprehensive, and many of these hieroglyphics exceedingly striking. The evidence is apparent upon the face that they were written by the person acquainted with the history of the creation, the fall of man and more or less of the correct ideas or notions of deity, the representation of the Godhead. Three, yet in one, is curiously shown to give simply, though impressively, the writer's view of that exalted personage, yes, the serpent, Represented as walking or formed in a manner to be able to walk. Standing in front of and near a female figure. Is to me one of the greatest representations I have ever seen upon paper. Is how Cowdery describes it. He goes on. Enoch's pillar. As mentioned by Josephus. Is upon this same role. The inner end of the same role, Joseph's record, presents a representation of the judgment. At one view, you behold the Savior seated upon his throne, crowned and holding the scepters of righteousness and power, before whom also are assembled the twelve tribes of Israel, the nations, the languages, and the tongues of the earth, the kingdoms of the world, over which Satan is represented as reigning Michael, the archangel, holding the key to the bottomless pit, and at the same time the devil as being chained and shut up in the bottomless pit but upon this last scene i am also only able to give you a shadow to the real picture wade asks kevin graham in all a seriousness can you show me where i might find all of this on the extant papyri Kevin says, well, let me see this. Kevin says, understand one thing, Mormons, the argument is not that we have everything Joseph Smith possessed. The argument is that we have strong reasons to believe the source For the book of Abraham is among the papyri that we have today. If the missing materials are irrelevant to the book of Abraham, then it doesn't matter how long the missing scroll is. That's irrelevant. We're not claiming nothing is missing. We're saying what is missing isn't about the book of Abraham. What we have today is. And with that basis, Kevin Graham does this. Wade had said, according to the Cleveland Whig, which I just read to you, the size of the papyri, the shape, the physical characteristics of the papyri. Very interestingly, Kevin found on the Mormon apologist Jeff Lindsay's website with his argument about the papyri, one of the fragments of the Joseph Smith papyri, and he gave the measurements. Four inches wide, 10 to 12 inches tall. The exact description. They said it was somewhat beat up and decayed, and you can see that's not perfectly preserved. That piece of papyrus fundamentally matches the description. This is the papyrus that we have. I'm going to show it to you straight from the horse's mouth, that way you don't give me this ridiculous sob and bull story that, oh, you're just taking that from an anti-Mormon source. This is the most authoritative LDS source you'll ever get on the papyri, period, end of discussion, no argument allowed. The Joseph Smith Papers, this one right here. That's the one that perfectly fits. The description of the Quincy Whig. Among the papyri that we have, strike one, Wade. <clears throat> try to leave this open. The next section. Are there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't believe how obtuse. Uh, some Mormon apologists have been about the papyri, right? I was one of them, so I'm not mocking. I was in that camp, I'm telling you. This isn't me being a hypocrite. Is there any red and black ink on the papyri? Yes, as a matter of fact, that very same fragment has it. You can see the red ink as well as the black. There's a little bit more on the bottom, but you can see it most clearly right there in in both columns. There is rubrics. They call that rubrics. Red ink and black ink. So the description matches. Correct? They also asked, they also mentioned several female figures. Okay? On the papyri. Are there several female figures that we can point to on the papyri? Absolutely. This is another fragment of the Joseph Smith papyri and there is a female and there is a female. That's one fragment. Oh, yes, in the top one. The sewing The female throwing the seeds. Those are females. The female here is behind the ox. Or I mean in front of the ox. Sorry, I'm seeing it backwards in the camera. Duh. Yeah, the female is in front of the ox. And she is sowing seed. So yes, there are many females in the papyri. And hold on, let's make sure we understand so that this isn't just an anomaly. In the same fragment that also is described perfectly with its measurements, as well as the black and red ink, we do have a female here, a female here, and... A female here. Three different females on that fragment. On this fragment, we have a female. You wanted to know does the extant papyri that we have match the description? Red and black ink, somewhat roughed up, and with female figures. And the answer is fundamentally yes. Then the question is, well, do we have a papyri that matches the description of Jesus Christ on his throne of judgment, holding the scepters of righteousness and power? I mean, you know, where are the 12 tribes of Israel portrayed? Where is the ladder of Jacob, etc.? Obviously, Wade is trying to show Kevin that these are descriptions of the missing scroll but the bad news is the evidence we do in fact have the judgment scene in the extant papyri over here over here is Jesus on his throne with his two scepters. Above the seated figure is twelve figures, which Cowdry identified with the biblical twelve tribes of Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The one that truly shocked me, that I am really excited to share with you. Is the Jacob's ladder? (laughs) I'm going to show you the picture that Kevin Graham showed online and then I will try to show it to you. Let's see, where is it? Yeah, she's there, but it's hard to see in the color, uh, papyri. But it's hard to see in the color photograph, but in Kevin's, it's absolutely beautifully shown. This is the Ladder of Jacob, which Kerry Mulstein in his article, his best article he's ever written, shows he even scooped me, man. He out-researched me. I thought there were two different witnesses that talked about the Ladder of Jacob, Molstein showed three. So, this is fundamental. This is the Mormon view. This is not an anti-Mormon argument. We're showing you the evidence. You want to see if the descriptions match? Okay. The real horrible news for apologists is every single unique description of the papyri we can show with the papyri that's here right now. Every unique biblical interpretation, we can show what they were pointing to in the papyri we have right now. There's nothing described from any missing scroll. It all matches. This female figure has a dress. See that little circled guy right there? That's Jacob up on top of the ladder. See where those arrows are pointing to? If you look hard, it's hard to see. There's a ladder right there. The dress has creases in it. Joseph Smith interpreted that, or else his followers, and Joseph Smith never refuted them, nor did he correct them. And Molstein talks about that. His followers taught that was the ladder of Jacob. And when Henry Caswell was shown that, he said, isn't that fascinating? Jacob, you see this little guy right there up on top of the ladder, Jacob on top of the ladder that only goes up as high as the woman's waist. And we can see that this is the bottom of her dress. And then there she is right there. They're holding their hands up. Caswell was completely amused. He thought that was the, the damn stupidest thing he'd ever heard because it is the damn stupidest thing anyone's ever heard, right? Here is the photograph of the papyri. I'm going to, tr- it's, it's right above my finger. I'm going to try like crazy to show this to you. This is from the Joseph Smith papers. See where my bird finger is, my middle finger? I don't know if you can see that or not. Bad light. There's the Jacob's ladder on that woman's dress. On the judgment scene with Jesus Christ over here on his throne holding the two scepters. And those 12 figures above him are the 12 tribes of Israel. My suspicion is when Joseph Smith or one of his Mormon followers was talking about Satan Right here, just above my, uh, just above my middle finger, is a figure right here of a hippopotamus body with a crocodile animal. I suspect that's the one they called Satan. Every single description, biblical in the papyri that the witnesses talked about are shown. You guys, that is as conclusive of evidence as you can possibly get that the importance of these two documents that Joseph Smith possessed and constantly showed... Everyone, the importance of the papyri that we have right now in Salt Lake City is because this is the the papyri they constantly showed and talked about and described the serpent talking to Eve, tempting Eve right there. The serpent on legs, right there. And Joseph Smith told Quincy John Quincy Adams, when Adams was skeptical, he said, oh, you mean snakes used to have legs? And Joseph Smith said, why, that's as plain as the pike staff. They have legs just like chickens, but their punishment was God took away their legs. There's the point right there. Enoch's pillar is right there below it, as told by Josephus. This is another one, animals, there's your bird. There's a bird, snake, various different animals, beasts. They even did describe the uh, the ox plowing with the people behind the ox plowing. They said that was one of the scenes. they were describing and there it is right there on the papyri that we possess there is a scene where they're out in the field sowing the seeds with the ox absolutely no description that we have that exists from anyone mormon non-mormon joseph smith any of his followers, it didn't matter. Everything that we have that was published, regardless of where, is about the papyri that we have right now. John Gee's missing scroll theory is simply an ad hoc excuse. We don't have any kind of description from the missing portion, which john gee says is the most important one it is the book of abraham they even described a man who was who was uh getting ready to be sacrificed well that was abraham facsimile number one of course we know that piece of cake Right there. Facsimile number one. A man laying on the couch, getting ready to die. And you can see the knife in the guy's hand. That's the picture he was looking at. Right there. Originally, the knife wasn't there. By the time Caswell saw it, the knife had been stupidly penciled in. It's a completely fake restoration. Every description. Kevin Graham shows through... Exhaustive evidence, every single description was found in the papyri. There's even a description of the celestial globe and the astronomical collections. Kevin Graham shows how in the copy of the facsimile number two, there is the celestial globe in the center of the celestial globe was the God. There's your astronomical calculations. They talk about this a lot in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar and in the Kirtland Egyptian papers in general about the astronomy Abraham learned from God. And then they also describe seeing Abraham teaching astronomy to Pharaoh on Pharaoh's Throne. Now, of course, this is Joseph Smith's description. Of course, it's not the correct provenance of the papyri. We don't have the original facsimile number three in the papyri, but they did have a copy made and a woodcut. And notice, as my friend Paul Osborne has shown and said, this little black guy right here, that should have been Anubis. He's had his nose chopped off. Joseph Smith told Headlock, or else Headlock did it, and uh, we think Joseph Smith told him to, that he chopped off his flipping nose to turn him into someone he wasn't. But there's Abraham on Pharaoh's throne from the Egyptian papyri. There is not one missing description that we cannot account for in the papyri that we have right now. There's nothing of a missing scroll anywhere. No evidence whatsoever. That's astonishing when you really stop and think about it. We know that they kept describing the same scenes on the same papyri. For the nine consecutive years that the Mormons had the papyri and the mummies and were showing off the papyri and the mummies, they kept seeing the serpent with legs talking to the woman. They kept seeing Jacob's ladder The first description was very early on in 1836, something like that. It was also described later in 1843, and it was Jacob's Ladder at the judgment scene. They are describing the same papyri. Joseph Smith was showing the same papyri and talking about The biblical descriptions and the Abraham descriptions, the Moses descriptions, the Aaron inscriptions, the Abraham signature inscriptions, the Adam and Eve description, the Jesus judgment scene description, the Satan description, the plowing scene, the red and black inks, everything they describe throughout the nine years is always this and this. For nine years, there is no other kind of description of anything on a missing scroll. That's seriously destructive to John Gee's ad hoc theory which lowers the Bayesian probability. Kerry Molstein gave a fabulous description of all of what I just showed you with the papyri. He doesn't show you the pictures. But he just stops and said, well, you know, Joseph Smith focused and concentrated on the biblical world and stopped it there. My further conclusion is based on... Molstein ignored the descriptions of all of Joseph Smith's commentaries that uh, I do have a few minutes. I'm going to share a couple of the authors in this book and their ideas. As far as Joseph Smith claimed and his followers believed, he simply conveyed what he was given by revelation. He showed little compunction about recognizing the importance of his own role in God's restoration of truth. By both disposition and calling, Joseph appeared to thrive in the spotlight. He and his followers believed that his opinion and perspective were to be deeply valued. His voice could be equivalent to the voice of God. This is in David F. Holland's article on the American Visionaries chapter. Oh, yeah, this was a great chapter too. American Visionaries and their approaches to their past. Chapter two, David Holland, associate professor of North American religious history at the Harvard Divinity School. That quote is on page forty eight. Let me read another one to you, real quick. This is what, see, what Mulstein did is he gave me, in essence, the entire answer to the simplest level test of Joseph Smith as true prophet, seer, revelator, and translator, which he failed. I think if Mulstein would have thought about the fullest complete ramifications and implications of his research in this, I don't think he would have published. I I really don't. Because he gave us the evidence that destroys Joseph Smith. It's amazing. Ironic. And Just remember, he is no myopic lazy learner either. He is a Mormon scholar at BYU. So this is not the backyard professor spreading uh, chaos, mayhem, and filthy gossip. I'm quoting one of the great LDS scholars at BYU, and I'll quote another one. This is Michael Hubbard McKay. He has chapter four, get them translated, translating the characters on the golden plates. So he's discussing, his context is the uh, Book of Mormon. Hey, Huff Daddy. Hey, Patty Cake. Welcome. I'm just seeing you're here. Mo, good to see you, man. Ryan, I hope you're having fun. I hope no one's beating you up, and I hope you're not beating anyone up. We're all having a fun discussion. We're all friends here. Joseph, and this is on page uh, 83. Joseph's friends and family accounts emphasize God's hand in the process and describe the translation in miraculous terms. They did not change that when it came to the Egyptian papyri. Not at all. There's no change. Here is Kent P. Jackson in his article, Joseph Smith's Biblical Antiquity, chapter 7 of this book. I'm going to quote from page 166, and all of it would center on the Bible as the revealed precursor and predecessor. Joseph Smith and his ministry would be the next chapter of biblical events that's the provenance that he put into the papyrite because he wanted to include the ancients into the modern restoration and he wanted to link back us with the ancients. Joseph Smith, a key issue of his view toward the Bible was authority. The biblical text was not an ultimate source of authority, but a means to a greater source. And of course, he's speaking revelation, direct priesthood keys from who? Biblical personages who laid their hands on his head, etc. But it always goes back to the provenance of the Bible, of which none of the papyri are involved. I promise, whore, the priest that was buried With the book of breathings on his chest that Joseph Smith acquired, I promise he didn't know Adam and Eve. He didn't know about the biblical patriarchs, Abraham and Joseph, Moses or Aaron. He didn't give a fly and flip about the 12 tribes of Israel because he didn't have that history in his knowledge. He was an Egyptian priest working his life in the Egyptian temple, living the Egyptian religion. He wasn't out there studying the Hebrew Old Testament or the New Testament or the uh, Old Testament Septuagint Greek in Ptolemaic times. None of that noise. There's just he wasn't doing that. They often found in Mormonism familiar teachings about the basic Christian principles. Now these are people who joined Mormonism. He's saying they always found in Mormonism familiar teachings about the basic Christian principles that they had held dear in their previous denominations. These would include a literal reading of the stories in the Bible and a belief in the saving work of Jesus Christ with faith, repentance, redemption from sin and eternal life, all of which doctrines Joseph Smith claimed to have gotten in the papyri as well. And it's just not there. That's on page 166. Furthermore, 167, Robert Millett. For Joseph Smith, the first vision was also a lesson in epistemology. Ancient texts would be important to him, for him throughout his career. But the source of his knowledge would-be revelation. And all of his followers believed that. And they said so. In print, sermon, public, private. That was their basis of understanding their own prophet. Uh, This is uh, yeah more on Kent Jackson, page 173. He says, Over the course of Joseph Smith's life, he recorded well over 100 texts that early Latter-day Saints received as revelations. So you can see the consistency and nonstop consistency through all of Joseph Smith's prophetic life of Bible and Revelation. Those are the twin prongs that he used as the basis for translating the papyri. He never corrected anyone else. He never taught any different. And that's why we can see the fraud so easy on the most simple level. You don't even have to get to the papyri. Now, this is uh, Matthew J. Gray And this is the chapter 10, the word of the Lord in the original. He's talking about Joseph Smith's study of Hebrew in Kirtland. Matthew J. Gray, assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU. This is on page 254. Many of his contemporaries, Joseph Smith's, also viewed languages as the key to unlocking the secret of human origins. But Joseph's supernatural gift was to reveal these secrets despite his lack of linguistic training. And that's how they touted Joseph Smith in the first place when the papyri were acquired by him. They said, hey, we have a guy who can translate this by the power of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ through the Irma Thummim." We know that the scholars don't. Joseph Smith himself, now Paul Osborne, Shulam over on Shade's message board has shown that Joseph Smith and the messenger and advocate constantly touted that I solve the problems of the world. I cut the Gordonian knot of mathematical truth, of religious truth, of historic truth through revelation. And God is my right hand man. Paul Osborne showed us that. That was how Joseph Smith approached the papyri. And he was wrong. There isn't a scholar in the world who will concur with his biblical assessment of the papyri and the meanings anywhere that we can find, because that's not what they are. So, producing a revision of the Bible, 1830 to 1833, Joseph still had no formal instructions in the Bible's original language indicating that his translation would again be supernatural and not traditional. And this is what some apologists say now today about his translation of the papyri also. Well, if it's supernatural, I have bad news. Neither Joseph Smith nor his God who revealed truth to him knew anything about Egyptian hieroglyphs. That puts Mormons in a real tricky spot. Like I said, I can't defend the indefensible man. Page two fifty-seven. Once again, this new emphasis on academic learning. Joseph tried to get everyone to study the the uh, the Hebrew. Of course, yeah, he's at the School of the Prophets. He went and uh, sent Oliver Cowdery in the middle of translating the papyri. Incidentally, he sent Oliver Cowdery off to the east to acquire Hebrew grammar texts so that they could also begin studying Hebrew right so this new emphasis on the academic learning was meant to prepare the lay ministers of the church to magnify their calling receive revelations to unfold the mysteries of the kingdom they never relied on their own knowledge they always claimed didn't matter which language didn't matter which book didn't matter which culture, they always emphasized and claimed revelation as the source of their knowledge. They wanted to have the experience of divine manifestations. Uh, Page 258. Mormons were also heirs to the Puritan tradition and from the beginning had more frequently identified themselves with Old Testament concepts and institutions such as Zion, the Twelve Tribes of Israel, the priesthood, and the temple. Joseph Smith's provenance of the papyri was lived throughout his entire adult life, everywhere. That was the only context he ever emphasized. That was the only context the Mormons believed, accepted, and emphasized. There was no other context for any of it, whether it's on gold plates, Egyptian papyri, in a vision, or on paper that they themselves made. It didn't matter. It came by revelation, according to them. And there we can see the fraud on the simplest level. Simultaneously, the study of the ancient texts and languages intensified Joseph's desire to forge a bond of fellowship between his community and the patriarchs of biblical antiquity. And I present to you Joseph Smith Papyri as number one evidence of this. We don't have the gold plates. We can't look at them. But baby, do we have the papyri. And what did he do? Biblical providence. He wants to tie in to the ancient biblical nature. Again, another scholar, right? And this time with the Bible or with the study of languages, Etc. It's just absolutely everywhere. Finally in Nauvoo, now this page 274 of this book. Finally in Nauvoo, Joseph used Hebrew as a way to bind his community and fellowship with the ancient saints. There's his emphasis. And again, uh, Oh, here we go. John W. Welch in his chapter on Joseph Smith's awareness of Greek and Latin, page 323. Throughout Joseph's lifetime, revelation came first. For him, all else, including insights from the Greek, the Hebrew, or the Latin, were merely enlightening appendages or footnotes. I I would add the Egyptian. So, Again and again and again and again over and over, various different scholars in the various different articles here describes this theme that we also find in the Egyptian papyri, which even before he gets out of the gate, shows us we don't even have to look at the book of Abraham. Man, we don't have to study any ancient languages. None of that in order to find out the main piece of information first, Joseph Smith. And then, if you wish, and I do, and I will, of course, but it's a fascinating topic, then you can jump into all the other scriptures and hoopla and, you know, languages and Mesoamerican. You've got Egyptian and Greek and Hebrew and all kinds of stuff, you know. You can go over to Jerusalem in the land where Jesus lived and and study there, you know, and all that. That's all good and well, and that's great because you do want to increase your education. But for testing Joseph Smith, I don't need any of that. The apologists are just wrong, just like their prophet. And that's unfortunate for them, but... So essentially, that is honest to goodness what I wanted to talk about tonight. Those four four areas that are really poignant for testing Joseph Smith. That's what Hugh Nibley began misguiding the entire Mormon apologetic scheme is, he said, it's not Joseph Smith on trial. It's the book of Abraham because he knew immediately being such a fabulous scholar with languages, he knew immediately the translation didn't work. So take your eyes off of Joseph Smith and jump off into the book of Abraham and we have a ball reading all of those made up stories and legends and myths about Abraham. (sighs) You know how does that work really? You know, you go, well, I mean, <laughs> so so you have a whole bunch of legends, and maybe there's a parallel or two to Abraham, or you have this particular story that might have something cool about Isaac or whatever, but you know, it's like books of Enoch in so many respects. We have a, a Hebrew Enoch, a Slavonic, the old Russian, a Greek, uh, I mean, you have all these books of Enoch and all, but they don't indicate an actual historicity of Enoch. Of course not. Their stories, their pseudepigrapha, they were written way, 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 way too late, just like Abraham is. And yet they use those as a basis to give authenticity to a person that we still can't even find even an iota of actual down-to-earth material evidence that he ever existed. Abraham's just like Jesus. Abraham's just like Adam. Abraham's just like Enoch or Melchizedek or whoever else, Methuselah. And yet they want us to believe in that as actual real because they can find a parallel or two while they do ignore the anachronisms? Come on. I I mean, you know, come on. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So that is essentially, uh, it looks like you guys were having a good time Yes, I have, patty cake. I have had some major revelations. I described that at the first of the video. I got this pure flow of intelligence showing how it's so simple that Joseph Smith is a fraud, but I got the kind of revelation Joseph Smith said I would receive, and I did. Now, that's brutal irony, but I'm not kidding. It really came and hit me. I was shocked. So... Oh, thank you, Splunky Doink. That's very kind of you. Tom Miller, welcome. Uh, I'll I'll take a few minutes. I've been an hour 45. Uh I will uh, I will gab at you. Radio Free Mormon, I'm glad you stuck around. Thanks for being here. Ryan Larson, thank you. Uh Tom Tim Rathbone, you're still here. Wayman29. Good to see you, bud. Glad to see you. Vega Dog, good to see you, man. Uh, good deal. You guys look like you've been having a fun time. That's wonderful. I'll be able to, to go back through this and see, uh, uh, and see all the comments and see if you had as much fun as I hope you did. I know I've had fun sharing this information with you in in a way it's basic, but again, it serves as a clarifying and that's what I want. Yeah. I, I I read John Gee's stuff and I go, no, dude, you're making it way too hard. Whoa, wait, you know, don't start rattling off all this scholarship stuff and names of people in antiquity that, you know, damn good. And well, none of the rest of us have known about or heard, but you do. So that makes you special. So you assume that means your view is correct and we're all going to fall over and genuflect before your scholarly greatness. John, that's not how it works, man. I promise clarity is what we want. That's what we're after. The Bayesian inference probability, you know, take a lesson from your faithful lapdog, Kerry Mulstein, John, I'm not kidding. His article in this, go read it and start imitating him instead of coming up with the ridiculous stuff you do. That obviously also others have completely demonstrated is false, as I have tonight from Kevin Graham's argument, utilizing the papyri that we have themselves that you, John Gee, think are insignificant. They are the only ones Mormons ever wanted to get the most out of. These are the ones that were actually prepared and preserved under the glass slides and described as the writings of Abraham and Joseph. Why would they do that unless it was the most important papyri they had, the ones they were translating, the ones they were showing the signature of the hero in, etc. The ones where they acquired the actual hieroglyphics from? Come on, it's basic Mickey Mouse ABC knowledge. Once you get clarity, that's why I want to do clarity. So next week, I want to just tell you guys, I will continue my analysis of John Gee and show you more paprological materials and evidence, and we will discuss it further and in more depth. And uh, I'm, I am I had a fantastic week. The more I read, the more I found, uh, when I found Kerry Mulstein and Brian Howland, his, his was good when I found them in here, I was blown away. I called Doug Vincent and told him about it. I said, hey, dude, I've received a revelation. This is what I'm going to talk about, and then the next day after I found Kerry Mulstein, I called Doug Benson again, and I said, "You're never going to believe this. Kerry Mulstein skunked me. He got ahead of me by six years, but he never carried it through to the complete conclusion. So that was my job. So." Yeah, that's interesting, Vega dog, uh, Nibbly thinking Joseph Smith wrote an actual pseudopigraphon, but he must have thought it was inspired. Isn't that fascinating? All you have to use is a simple word. Oh, well, that's inspired. And all of a sudden that means truth to a Mormon. They'll believe anything you flip and say, as long as you use the word revelation or inspired or something like that. That's not good. That, that, that cannot possibly lead to a healthy uh community in any manner I, I I just I don't see it that that can't possibly work yeah hey uh Wayman 29, I see you're talking to Ryan Larson. Do look up his Google's metaphors on Vogel. I'm reading it right now, too. Ryan Larson's got some good stuff. I, I ultimately suspect I'm going to end up disagreeing with my good friend, and that's all good and well. It's okay. We're not here to beat the hell out of each other, unless your name is John Gee and Kerry Mulsteen. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, Again, I honestly think I've shied away from ad hominem. I'm serious. I've given credit where credit's due tonight, and I have not attacked the person. It's not about the person. It's about the argument. So, yeah, uh, Ryan Larson's got some good stuff. Uh, I've known Wayman 29, Ryan, for like 20 years. We go way back when I was an apologist. And Wayman was always very friendly and nice to me. And uh, actually, he looked into some Hebrew materials with me and all that. We go way. That's fun stuff really is so anyway yeah Wayman's into pottery you guys you ought to go check out his pottery site Seriously, he made me a coffee cup. oh I wish I hey Wayman I'll show that coffee cup next week and I'll brag on you yeah he made my wife and I our coffee oh man they're beautiful he's awesome with pottery yeah he fantastic oh Ruth Smart hello welcome Glad to see you. Yeah. Yeah, I do Wayman. I, I I, think you'll enjoy it. We can all have a good conversation all together. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, he is too, Ryan. Wayman's been a good man. I, I am not kidding. All right. Tom Miller. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's about arguments and proof. I, I think so. I I can't quite get the context of your chat, but it's a lot of fun seeing you guys have so much fun together. Yeah, remember, seriously, I view absolutely all of you as my friends. We're all friends here, truly. Yes, we do think differently, and sure, we're going to come to different conclusions, but this is the fun of... Getting together. You know, if I find a way, I swear, after COVID, wouldn't it be a blast if we could get all of us together for a great big barbecue? I could bring my smoker and smoke up some uh, bacon-wrapped bratwurst. Oh, man, I do that smoked bacon wrap bratwurst you've ever seen i'm gonna do a cooking video i had one of my chess fans today i posted another bobby fisher chess video this morning and i had another chess fan say hey where's all those cooking videos i want to see the backyard professor cooking videos so i'm gonna do some more of them too i'll show you how i do my brats you'll love them man so Anyway, oh, thank you, Mo. That's very kind. I I didn't get a chance to see you guys very much tonight. So thank you for all your kindness and support and love and all that jazz. Uh, Thank you for the likes. I appreciate you attending. Uh, I, I seriously try to give you guys good information, good quality information. I feel like I'm reading the good stuff, and I love to share it. I love to try to keep it clear and easy because let's face it, none of us are scholars here except Radio Free Mormon and Dan Vogel and uh, Ryan Larson and Doug Vincent and Patty Cake and Mo- oh no. <laughs> so I mean, we we want to. It's not an insult to say we're normal, we just want to understand, right? And we haven't had the time to go through all the scholarship, although I've been very blessed to be able to do a lot of reading and blessed more with being able to acquire a lot of books. And now I'm being blessed to share it with you. So, yeah, we're all friends here. I love this, man. I think you're right, Vega dog. I agree with you, bro. Absolutely. Vega says, uh, I still think metaphor and mythology belong to a healthy Homo sapien civilization. Uh, I will do videos on that, I promise, right here, uh, if not live sessions. That is my intention. Uh, Derek Lambert from Myth Vision just contacted me this last week, as did uh, the gentleman from no informant and they both want me on their shows again to talk more about stuff. So, and, and he is big into that. So I'm going to get back on their shows a few times. Hopefully this next week, Tim Rathbone, appreciate everything you do too. You're you're Oh, thank you. Anonymous. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Oh, Ted's. Yeah. I see you Ted's. Yeah, we had a, we, we seem to have had a good crowd. I mean, you guys are really whooping it up with the, yeah, Vega dog. If you're a Campbell fan, we'll all get along together. I, I am too. And I, I actually intend on doing some Joseph Campbell videos. I think it's important because in conjunction with Alan Watts and with in conjunction with Alian, Alan Dundies, who was kind of more of a critic against him and all, but I think Campbell's approach to the to the uh, comparison, the coming together of the mythology and the history, uh, and the religiosity, well, the spirituality, I'll put it that way. I I can't help it. I, I hope I'm not biased, but I think Campbell did a good job. I just don't think today's, oh, and this is so bad to say publicly because I'll get lambasted, I know, but I'm not convinced, I'll put it this way, and again, just my opinion, but I'm not convinced that today's scholarship can grasp uh Joseph Campbell's emphasis on the spirituality aspect of the ancients. That is so poo-pooed today. And I honestly think that's a mistake. I, I think that's a misstep. So I would love to do more videos on that too. When I when I uh, get through all of this papyri stuff, which is so fun for me. Uh, believe me, the that's why I started studying the Mithraism, but as a jumping in point to the ancient mysteries, the mythology, the, all of that stuff is fun stuff for me. Oh, Doug, you are way too. Oh, Doug, you are way too kind. Thank you. That is so kind. Yes, Raised by Wolves. That's a great book, Tim Rathbone. Yeah, see. You guys are all reading the good literature. I'm serious. It's no wonder you're such a dang good audience, man. It's no wonder you're so intelligent. I love you guys. Yeah. Love you too, Patty Cake. Well, I'm very thrilled. I make your week. I'll make your week next week too. Just keep coming back and I'll keep recharging the old batteries. Yeah, baby. Um. Oh, you're remote viewing BYP right now. There you go. See, there you have it. RFM, good on you. All right. Yeah, it does, doesn't it, Wayman? Watching Campbell and some of the old videos. Uh, I, boy, the difference twenty years makes in technology, right? Capability of uh, well, having the picture clear and the sound good. Oh man, it's. I agree with you. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, the Shades message board, the actual name, uh, I think it's Discuss Mormonism, something like that. Right now we're having hellacious troubles with trolls, and I I basically broke the rules and told them, just get out of here. Get off the board, you idiots. And uh, I suspect Shades is going to slap me on the wrist and say, you've got to obey rules. You're not supposed to uninvite anyone. But I mean, if they're not there to have a good conversation, then... What's the point? There's other message boards to go and have it, go and have it them. So anyway, it's all fun. Yeah. Discuss Mormonism. I think it is Ryan. That's the name of it. And discuss Pharaoh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug Vincent. Thank you. (coughs) That could actually be an entire video. yeah in the uh in the book of Abraham the text the translated text where in the story uh and I think it's in uh I think it's in the facsimiles too how Joseph Smith translated the hieroglyphs uh where he was talking about Pharaoh and the actual the actual title uh was what what was it doug eleven to twelve hundred b c and we're thinking i based on what little we know archaeologically, we don't have a dang thing about Abraham, which is unfortunate, but we don't, but i mean technically the the scholarly apparatus dates him back to eighteen hundred. I have seen two thousand b c but eighteen hundred b c is about the rough confluence of 1800 to 1900 B.C., well, back then, the, the Egyptians were not calling their leader Pharaoh, it was the king. Uh, and I did look this up, Doug, I uh, believe it's in Ritner, I, I, can, I think it's in his book on the uh, Joseph Smith papyri, a complete edition, where he says essentially the way Joseph Smith translated it, he's calling him the king, king. By, by calling the person Pharaoh, it's kind of a double, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, Pharaoh is a personal name, uh, just does not work. That's a bloody anachronism. I think, uh, oh, Ed Ashman talked about that a bit. I know uh, Stephen Thompson talked about that a little bit. Oh, wait till you guys see my rebuttal of myself, of my own apologetic ha! on Stephen Thompson. Oh man, I was such an arrogant little ignoramus back then. Oh my gosh. Total embarrassment, but yeah, you know. Hey, at least I'm correcting it based on evidence. I'm you gotta be flexible with the evidence, man. That's the way it works. So anyway. Okay. Yeah, I love all of RFM's podcasts. Every one of them are excellent. Okay, you guys. Look, yeah, there's 57 of us here. I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. Thank you for y'all. I sound like a Southerner. I'm really not. I'm a. I'm a Northerner. I'm a A Westerner. So I'm going to call it good for tonight. King Follett, he fell. So he falled. <laughs> RFM, yeah, we'll talk about that anyway. Yeah, actually, King Follett would make some fun videos too, of course. And you've taken that to the measure RFM, you've done fabulous with that. So, all right, you guys, I'm going to call it good. I'm going to call it a night. I've got to go have some dinner. Um, thank you again for showing up. Be good, do well, have fun, stay friends, get lots of sleep. Remember, next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, same time, same place, same subject with further evidence and analysis demonstrating again why so much of the apologist materials just can't work. Dadgummit. All right, you guys, be good. I got to go. I will. Thank you, Wayman. Thank you for showing up. Love you too, Ryan. Love all you guys. I'm a spud master. Thanks, Doug. I'm a French fry cook too. Hey, on my cooking video, I'll cook some French fries and I'll show you guys how to cook good French fries. Yeah, baby. Yeah, I will, Wayman. I'll shoot you. Yep. Yep. I will shoot your text. Okay, you guys. I got to go. See you later. Thank you again. Next Sunday. See you then. Woo-hoo!